we're coming up to Constantine, and Constantine's a figure that most people know. They know Julius Caesar at one end, and maybe Caesar Augustus and Nero. And then, basically, unless you're into philosophy, and you know Marcus Aurelius, uh, everything is a blur until you get to uh, Constantine. Well, we've worked our way uh, up uh, through the crisis of the third century, uh, a very perilous time, a time of great instability, great change in the empire. Uh, we had a period of, uh, oh, roughly 50 years, a little more, a little less, depending on how you define it. And we've had, depending on how you count them, anything from 22 to 26 emperors in that period of time. We had climate change, which flooded what is now the Netherlands, driving people south. We had plague, including probably the Black Death, but probably also smallpox. We had invasions across the Rhine from the Germanic tribes, which is a recurring theme in history for 2,000 years, not just for the Romans, but always. And then we had the rise of another Eastern Empire uh, that pressured the Eastern half of the Roman Empire. We saw the empire split into three parts, uh, an Eastern part, a Northern part, and uh, an African part. We saw that uh, eventually that was brought back together again. And then we arrived at uh, a very important figure uh, who is going to set the stage for what we're going to discuss today, and that is the Emperor Diocletian. And Diocletian was, uh, as I've said, was a brilliant man. He looked over the situation in the empire and he decided that the empire uh, needed to address the concept of secession. One of the problems that, as I've mentioned, had plagued the Roman Empire from its very inception is that there were no hard and fast rules as to who should pick up the crown after an, uh, an emperor died or was assassinated. Assassination, of course, becoming increasingly common, uh, particularly in the third century. So he decided to split the empire in two, an east and a west, he established new uh, capital cities. Uh, in the east, it's uh, Nicomedia, which is in uh, northern, um, uh, modern-day Turkey, northwestern Turkey. Oh, probably 100 miles or thereabouts south of the Dardanelles. And in the Western Empire, uh, yes, Rome was still there, but there was also a new capital established in Ravenna, which is at the top of the Adriatic Sea between uh, Europe and, uh, rather, between Italy and Greece. Uh, not too far from where Venice is today. Now, uh, there was a lot of hostility generated towards the Christians. There were persecutions throughout the third century. Uh, the Christians were regarded as atheists and therefore responsible for the troubles of the empire because they were displeasing the traditional gods. Remember that phrase, the most maiorum, 
the, the traditional uh, worship services of the empire, starting with the Republic, which is roughly 700 BC. And uh, then in 310, in the middle of all these persecutions, particularly in the East, um, we get the Edict of Nicomedia, which allows tolerance of Christians. And at this point, people are exhausted. The empire has stabilized, but it is not the empire of the first and second centuries. There's been permanent uh, depopulation of the countryside, just like the Black Death did in 14th century Europe. Uh, they're having trouble feeding themselves. The infrastructure which had allowed them to dominate the Mediterranean world is beginning to fall into disrepair. Trade is involuting because there is increased lawlessness and uh, difficulty in travel. The Pax Romana is no more. That was the piece that characterized the first 200, 250 years of the empire. Well, uh, Diocletian's great plan uh, involves uh, the fact that he will rule the Eastern Empire. Uh, his friend or other power broker uh, Maximian will rule the Western Empire, and they will be called Augusti. They will, while they are alive, designate their successors, who will be called Caesars. And so in the East, uh, Diocletian uh, designates uh, Galerius, and in the West, uh, Maximian designates his successor as Constantius important because Constantius, when he accedes through the throne after Maximian and Diocletian resign, now there's something. I mean, that's almost unheard of in the history of Rome. They both decide they've had enough. Well, actually, Diocletian has decided he's had enough, and he convinces Maximian to retire from the throne as well. Maximian doesn't want to, but he does, which tells you who's in charge. So Constantius accedes to the Western throne. And then he asks Diocletian, as he's now the Augustus of the West, but he's still the junior Augustus. Diocletian's very much the man in charge. Uh, he asks Diocletian, excuse me, Diocletian's uh, successor, Galerius, can I have my son, who's in your administration, transferred over to my administration in the West? And Galerius says, of course. Well, that son is Constantine. So, Galerius survives, Constantius dies a natural death, another rarity. So who becomes the Augustus 
in the West? Well, it's Constantine. But there's Maximian's son is a fellow by the name of Maxentius. He's been the Caesar, the second in command in the West. And instead of succeeding when Constantius dies to become top dog, Constantius names his son. Boom. The, the concept of succession has just dissolved. Well, Maxentius is justifiably annoyed. I mean, there were rules, and he played by the rules. But Constantius didn't play by the rules. He named his son. Well, Maxentius is down in Rome. Uh, Constantine's up in Gaul, France. He's got part of Germany. He's got France. He's got the part of the British Isles. Um, he decides to bide his time, and, and because he needs something to do, he decides, oh, I'm going to conquer Africa. And he does. This really annoys Maxentius because Africa is supposed to be part of his kingdom. Not only that, but that's where most of the food comes from. So, after six years of consolidating his power, Constantine decides it's time to make a move, and he does. He takes his army and he marches south into Italy. Well, this is where Maxentius lives. And there is a colossal battle, and it occurs outside of Rome. As a matter of fact, it occurs on the bank of the Tiber River, which runs through Rome. And it's called the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. It's a very famous battle because this battle will decide who rules not just some of the Western Empire, but also portions of Africa. Uh, the Eastern Empire wants to hold on to Egypt. Maxentius rallies his troops and then commits. Have you ever heard? Uh, we all know the Charge of the Light Brigade, right? Tennyson's famous poem about the, the Light Brigade and the, uh, uh, the war uh, in the Black Sea, Crimean War. And uh, there's a wonderful book called, that's based on a line from that poem. The line in the poem that everybody knows, theirs was not to reason why, theirs was but to do or die. And the book, which you must read, you can get it for probably 10 cents used, is called The Reason Why. And it's a perfect example of how the best laid plans can go wrong through one stupid mistake. And Maxentius makes the stupid mistake. Now, Maxentius is in Rome. Rome has finally now built a colossal set of walls possibly the biggest set of walls in the history of the ancient world. 
Now, he can sit tight in there, but he doesn't. He marches himself out along with his army, and not only that, he doesn't wait for Constantine to try to cross the river across the Milvian Bridge. That's not good enough. He marches his army over the bridge to meet Constantine on the far side of the river. Now, you're in the military. You can't answer. Does this sound like a good idea? No. It's, it's one of the stupidest ideas any commander has ever had. And he pays for it and pays big. And his army is routed. They, of course, can't get over the bridge uh, because everybody's trying to get over the bridge at the same time. And um, he is jostled, falls from his horse into the river, into the Tiber, where he drowns. That's the end of poor Maxentius. Now Constantine has the Western Empire. He decides to call a truce, truce rather, with uh, the uh, emperor in the east. So having, he goes from having inherited uh, his father's throne in 306 to now dis, uh, dis defeating Maxentius in 312, uh, rather 311. And then in 311, he strikes a deal with the eastern emperor who is still galerious, and uh, they now eat, proclaim this edict which allows for religious toleration throughout the entire empire. The persecutions of the Christians had continued in the east under Galerius, but now a truce is held. Now you're wondering about what happened to the Cairo. And the Cairo is a very interesting story. And Constantine told a number of versions of how he went into battle and saw the cross in the sky and received a message from God that under this sign he would conquer. Um, The remarkable thing about this whole event involving Constantine is that Constantine's a pagan. He's not a Christian. Not only that, but his entire army is pagan. Most of the Christians that were in the army had been ferreted out by other emperors, and we've talked about that in the past. He is such a commanding figure, though, and so beloved of his troops. I mean, he has survived six years and hasn't been assassinated by his troops. That this overwhelming experience that he has, this transcendental, almost road to Damascus kind of experience, is so transformative that he convinces his army to repaint or overpaint their shields and put up the symbol of the Christian God, which has been revealed to him.
everything about this whole event, from the appearance in the sky, to the message given to a pagan emperor, to the ability of a pagan emperor to convince an army of 30 or 40,000 pagans to go into battle protected by this persecuted sect's god, it's almost unfathomable. And yet it is true, and Constantine, uh, as I said, told the story to a number of people throughout his, his reign and verified it with slight mod modifications. Uh, but anybody who's had a transformative experience in their life with time begins to sort of start to fit it into a larger schematic for their worldview because what has changed is Constantine's world view. He may have worshipped Saul Invictus, the invincible son, who was here for the first lecture. Remember we talked about the fact that even at the time of Christ, there was, had been a yearning developing in the Greco-Roman world for a concept of hierarchy and a, a sense that there can't be these thousands of gods. There's got to be some kind of hierarchy in back of it. Well, it comes to fruition in this experience that Constantine has. And he now reveal, realizes that while he's been worshiping the sun, what he really has been worshiping is a manifestation of the one true God. Uh, so that is 311. He's won the throne. Shortly after this edict of religious toleration on both sides, uh, Galerius dies. Uh, and his successor in the east, Licinius, and Constantine strike a deal. And this is the famous Edict of Milan. This is one of those dates you really need to know. It's 313. And this joint declaration from both Augusti has a number of points that you see listed in your notes. And probably the, the most interesting one is this first one, that the supreme deity has the right to be worshiped as he pleases. This stands the entire concept of church and state on its head. Up until now, whoever the emperor worshipped was what you worshipped. The emperor has just demoted himself to below the supreme god, saying that the supreme god dictates how he will be worshipped. See the difference? Very important difference. Because if that's the case, then number two follows. Toleration is for not just Christians, but all other religions. Which leads us to point number three. 
Therefore, Christianity is not the exclusive religion of the empire. And if there's anything that's misunderstood about Constantine and the Edict of Milan, it is this third point. Most people who think about these things think that the Edict of Milan established Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire. It didn't. It just leveled the playing field and it reordered the concept of God versus God on earth, the emperor. The emperor is not God on earth anymore. He's the highest of all on earth, but he has now been demoted below the one high God. So Christianity still has some work to do. It's still in competition with many, many other kinds of religion, but there's no doubt about the fact that the emperor, if the emperor is a Christian, that's going to carry a lot of weight. And it will, because um, Constantine, being a man of some ambition, Besides, you know, this idea of having two emperors, eh. So being one of the great generals in all of history, he decides to move east, and uh, he will eliminate poor old Licinius. So poor old Licinius is killed. Um, now, Constantine, once he's gotten rid of all secular competition, now has a problem on his hands. Um, he now is a strong supporter of Christianity. He returns all the confiscated property. He starts building churches. He starts looting. Uh, many of the pagan temples because he has a new project. He's going to build a new capital for the whole empire. We've had Rome, then we went to at least two capitals. Now we're going to come back and we're going to have one capital again. And of course that capital is Constantinople. So he's going to build the city from scratch. And he locates it, uh, obviously, uh, on the Bosphorus. It's a great location for transferring troops in and out because you can go east or west with uh, sea travel. Uh, and he makes it his showcase. And he spares no expense. Um, but along with his new faith, he inherits some of the problems with the new faith. And you see those listed under F. And the first one is the Donatist controversy. This is a relic from the persecutions of Christians, particularly the persecutions of Christians in North Africa. Uh, a number of people in the church during these persecutions have 
stepped away from their faith under the threat of punishment, poverty, exile. And then when the persecution sputters out and a more tolerant emperor comes to the throne, well, they want to come back. But the hardcore that withstood the persecution are led by uh, a cleric by the name of Donatus. And he says, excuse me, no. You're not real Christians. This gets bartered back and forth. Uh, eventually, uh, the empire decides that these people can come back. Uh, and in a huff, the Donatists go off and form a separate sect, which survives for about 100 years, in, principally in North Africa. Um, a more important problem, and one that will persist for hundreds of years, is the next one, number two, the Aryan controversy. The Aryan controversy, and you see, um, this is the famous battle between Arius, who's a cleric, and uh, the Bishop of Alexandria, who is Athanasius. And we know that we have the Athanasian Creed. You will find it in your prayer book. Uh, Arius says, look, we believe that God created everything. But that means he must have created the sun. And that means maybe he also created the spirit. But we'll put the spirit to the side. We'll just simply say, and this is the motto of the Arians, there was a time when Christ was not. And you can see these two Greek words, homoousius and homoousius. And it has to do with the fact that we're talking about where they, is Jesus of one substance with the Father? or of a similar substance to the Father? Well, we believe the former. The Arians believe the latter. He's almost there with God, but he doesn't quite make the grade. Doesn't mean he can't be worshiped. But you see, what are we getting here? Another hierarchy. People love to think that way. And I'm sure that there are devout Christians today who believe that, well, the Father's up here, and then there's the Son, and then there's the Holy Spirit. No, there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But if you go to an Eastern church, you will find that the Father is up here, and you'll see it in the beautiful mosaics. There is the Father. And there's the Holy Spirit and the Son. So this proves to be a tremendous wedge 
which begins the process of, before it's even been consolidated, it's beginning the process of starting to divide the church again, yet again. So, what to do? Well, um, he's now been on the throne, well, the unified throne, maybe about eight or nine years now. I don't have the exact date there. This is becoming a tremendous issue because he's in the East. The West doesn't believe that. The East is, is, has, has problems with its issue of Christology is the theological term for it. Who exactly is Christ and what's his relationship to God the Father and to the Holy Spirit? And this is going to bedevil the church right up into the 800s. But it's beginning to cause real problems, civil strife and tensions in this empire that Constantine wants to reunite. So he calls for a general council of the church, the first truly general council of the church. And that will be the Council of Nicaea. Now, how many people here read Dan Brown's wretched book? Okay. That's, that's a personal opinion. That's, that's not in the notes, okay. But one of the half-truths that Dan Brown deals with in that book is what went on and what kind of scandal went on at the Council of Nicaea. And this is where the evil church began to realize that it had something to hide and it would now have to create this, this myth and this legend and blah, 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 blah. And the next thing you know, we're up in Scotland trying to decode uh, the stone works in, give me the name of the chapel, I can't remember, S uh, Sinclair? Uh, yeah, thank you. In point of fact, despite the terrible difficulties with travel, although that's improving a bit because there's nobody left who Constantine hasn't slaughtered, so things are calming down a bit. In point of fact, there were 318 bishops at the Council of Nicaea. And you see that little rubric there next to the Council of Nicaea, 316-2? The Nicene Creed, as we recite it, passed 316-2. Sounds like they finally thought they had this all worked out. So Dan Brown, because it was overwhelming. And who presided over the council? Constantine himself. He sat on the throne, everybody else sat around him, and this looks very much like what happens when you see the College of Cardinals, where there is the Pope, and there is the College of Cardinals in a U-shape around him. All these things are beginning to start to trickle into familiar territory. Um, so, Council of Nicaea. Uh, Important also to mention is the fact that uh, his mother, Constantine's mother, Saint Helena, is the great, she's a, a force of nature 
when it comes to embracing Christianity. She is the one who goes off and starts building churches like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre uh, and goes down there, brings back the, the fragments of the cross, brings back the, corn, the thor, crown of thorns, um, all of this, and she starts building churches all over the place. A remarkable woman, not a woman to be trifled with, and, uh, but, and, and one that uh, had the confidence of her son. So we can't uh, ignore her efforts um, because you can still see her efforts in the Holy Land. Now, um, 319. Uh, one of the problems that we've had throughout this Roman history up till now is the fact that the Romans were incredibly superstitious. Uh, it's doubtful whether they were any more superstitious than most other ancient cultures, uh, except for Greece. Uh, but the was that the first church built? Yeah, it's the little one. <laughs> no, uh, I, I can't. I can't tell you. I, I mean, the, the current church. I believe that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre that we see today, the big church, that is the church. Now, it's been added on to over the centuries, rebuilt, revised, and so on and so forth. Um, those of you who haven't been there, the oddity about it is you walk into this great church and inside of it's another church uh, where the actual um, uh, cross uh, Golgotha is and the, 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 all the other stuff that you go there to see. Okay. It's been a while since I've been there. Um, so these uh, people that were soothsayers and did it largely by divination, the Romans' favorite form of divination was entrail examination. Take out the liver, take out the heart, this, that, it all means something. It's like reading a tea leaf, uh, cups, uh, a, tea, a cup of tea leaves, except it's much bloodier, okay? Constantine, with a stroke of a pen, says, that's it, it's outlawed. That's, that's not the way God communicates with humans. He abolishes that. Um, he uh, defeats Licinius, as I mentioned, and he dies May 22, 337. And it's on his deathbed that he is baptized. We may have discussed this at some other time, but you could say, well, why did he wait that long? Well, the doctrine was at that time that when you were baptized, it covered all your past sins. He wanted to wait till the very last minute so he couldn't sin again before he died. But, but that was not just his idiosyncrasy. That was uh, one of the thoughts about baptism at that time. Finally, page 13. We're not quite rid of Constantine yet. Do you remember um, Philip the Arab 
who was the fellow who ascended to the throne and had a personal confession and absolution to be forgiven for the sin of having murdered Gordian III, who was the emperor before him, and thereby establish the fact that God was above the emperor, at least in the eyes of the church. Do you remember him? Not really. Well, that was kind of an interesting thing, that here he embraced Christianity, but he just murdered uh, the emperor. But, you know, they had a way of compartmentalizing, as we still do to this day. Well, Constantine really can compartmentalize. He's learned his history lessons very, very well about succession. There, <clears throat> there are 11 potential children, nieces, uh, nephews, in line for the throne. And he's getting towards the end of his life. And he wants to make sure <coughs> that this empire that he has reconsolidated doesn't fragment. What to do? Well, we tried at Diocletian's way. Well, that didn't work. Well, there is an old tradition and it's actually a very, a very common tradition, particularly in the East, particularly in Eastern empires. You kill all the potential heirs. And this is a famous event called the Massacre of the Princes. And out of the 11 princes, nine of them are slaughtered on Constantine's orders. Leaves only two, Constantius II and Julian. Um, Constantius succeeds to the throne after his father, Constantine, dies. He's named in honor of his grandfather, Constantius, who was Constantine's father. So he's Constantius the second. He has been raised in a Christian environment. He promptly goes out and closes all pagan temples in the emperor, empire. Boom. And he, he moves on from there. In 356 comes the edict that anybody who sacrifices to an idol, in other words, we've had closet Christians for 300 years. Now we've got closet pagans. If you're caught sacrificing to a pagan idol, you're dead. You get the feeling that actually the Roman emperors seemed a little bit more gentle, perhaps, than these very early Christians. Well, I hate to say it, uh, but in some ways they were. They mostly cared about whether you kept the money coming in. Uh, so, in 360, uh, Julian, who has been managing uh, the Western army, while Constantius is first among equals. He's above and his uh, cousin, Julian, is given the West, which is the, the lesser 
of the two jobs because the Western Empire has never really recovered. The power of the empire is in the East and has been trending that way for hundreds of years. Um, so Julian decides he's going to march east. He's going to fight Constantius and seize the throne. Constantius conveniently dies. He's not assassinated. He's not poisoned. And so Julian ascends the throne. Now, he is truly a fascinating guy. Julian the Apostate. Um, he has a very short reign, as you can see, 361 to 363, but he reopens the pagan temples. Now, interestingly enough, he was raised as a Christian. But he never embraced it except insofar as to keep from being slaughtered. As he got older, he got very much into Greco-Roman philosophy, and he decided that there was more truth to be found in that tradition than there was to be found in the Christian tradition. Uh, so the whole temple system begins to go up and running, although it's, it's, it's not as big as it was. Um, subsidies to the church are ended. Christians cannot teach the pagan classics, which means that they can't, in effect, teach higher education because whether you're a Christian or not, you still stu study Plato and you study Aristotle and you study Socrates and you study all of this. That's, that's your, your core, uh, uh, what do they call it, what we all had in college, core curriculum. That's your core curriculum. And he says, okay, we're going to restore, we're going to continue the core curriculum, but you can't teach it because you don't believe it. Um, the Arians are brought back from exile because they left in a huff after the Council of Nicaea. Um, and in imitation of the Christian social network, social services network, he tries to begin one that will compete, which will be run by the pagan establishment. Um, he runs out of time dies. It's too little, too late. At this point, better than 50% of the empire is Christian. They're everywhere in all aspects of government. He's succeeded by the only other great that we have, uh, which is Theodosius the Great. With Theodosius, um, he is as orthodox an emperor as there ever will be. Uh, he is a strict Nicene Christian, so there's this little tension again which will develop because uh, uh, Julian the Apostate brings the Arians back in. So we thought we'd at least marginalize the Arians, but no, they're brought back in and now Theodosius is there. He decides he doesn't want to go through all this exiling of people, but it introduces a germ that will trouble the Eastern Church for hundreds and hundreds of years. It will not be resolved in the East for a very long time. Um, he brings in a the basis, one of the great bases of Western law, his code, law code. Uh, there will be no sacrifices, divination, idol worship, no pagan cults, 
he cleans house completely. And it is complete. That's it. There will be no regeneration of pagan cults, except surreptitiously. Um, years ago, I went to Egypt, and we were down in Luxor, which is on the east side of the Nile, and the Valley of the Kings is over on the west side. <clears throat> and I was talking to the ta uh, tour guide, and we went to both places, and if you haven't been there, it's fabulous. Wait till they stop killing Christians, okay? Some things never change. Uh, and I was talking to the tour guide, who's an, uh, a middle-aged Egyptian, very intelligent man, and he said, I was saying, gee, you know, look at all of this stuff. And he said, yeah, pretty impressive. He said, but I'll tell you something. He said, on the Western Bank, where there are plenty of other temples, ruins, he said, we guides and the maintenance people still find sacrifices to Egyptian gods and Egyptian rulers. People come in at night and they make their little obeisance and they leave an offering. So paganism still is not dead. Um, I'd like to say that the Christians behaved very, very well and behaved like Christians now that they were in the driver's seat. They didn't. They behaved very badly. Uh, we talked last week about the fact that, uh, the curious fact that most sculpture from the Greco-Roman world is missing its nose or other body parts. That's not an accident. That were, those were acts of desecration by Christians towards pagans who are now in the minority. Uh, there have been some other dreadful things that have happened at the hands of Christians. The world's largest uh, complex, including the famous library and so on in Alexandria, was called the Serapeum. Uh, it was dedicated to the goddess Serapis, who was an Eastern fertility goddess, but it was a great center of learning. Uh, that was uh, destroyed um, by uh, a mob led by the Bishop uh, of Alexandria, uh, named, of all things, Theophilus Godlover. Uh, then there's the horrifying murder of a woman by the name of Hypatia. And that name used to be a 19th, 18th century first name, Hypatia, particularly in Britain, where everybody learned the classics when they went off to Oxford or Cambridge. Uh, she was considered to be the greatest, possibly the greatest polymath, female polymath in the history of Western civilization up to that time. She was brilliant in everything. She was also astonishingly beautiful and was a virgin and dedicated herself just to wisdom, learning, etc. As you can see, mathematician, astronomer, philosopher. One day, she was walking down the street, and a Christian mob, who knew that she was a pagan, seized her, beat her, dragged her into a church, raped her, dismembered her, 
and on the way to dismembering, started to skin her alive, then decided that they'd burn her. Why do I mention this? I mention this because every Christian in this room is fallen. We all have Adam at his worst, somewhere in there. This is a battlefield. It was a battlefield then. And even at the moment of consummate triumph, Satan was still whispering in people's ears. Did the Romans do a lot of very cruel things? Of course they did. Were the Romans as individuals created in the image of God? Of course they were. One of the things I love about history is it allows you to put not only your own times in perspective, but put your own life in perspective. There are no new sins. They're just repackaged. Intolerance is this theme that runs through so much of this story of the first four centuries of Christianity. I'm not suggesting that there's an equivalence in terms of truth, not at all. The struggle against darkness and superstition will never be over until the second coming. And even then, there'll be people that say, I still don't believe it. But it is to give us some humility, give us some perspective. People struggle to do what they believe is right. The nub is what I believe is right isn't what you believe is right. And one of the great things about America is we have the right to work this out on a personal basis. You see what happens when you try to mix state power with religious power. Here we finally win the battle against these terrible barbaric pagans. And what do we do? We dust off their playbook. So, humility is maybe the takeaway from this. There were a lot of very good people trying to do what they thought was absolutely right. What they absolutely thought the God, the gods, whatever, wanted from them. Little humility. And that was the brilliance of the Founding Fathers. Those dead white males who were to be cursed and uh, obliterated from history. How were they trained? What was their education? They were trained on the same things from Greco-Roman history. And their takeaway from it, that they included in the Constitution, 
was the concept that there would be no established religion. They knew their history. They saw that it sounds like a great idea, but the devil's in the details. And if you want a model for that, did Jesus ever aspire to an elected office? He never ran for an office. He never had anything, any aspirations for worldly power. Comments? Now, for those of you that, that were disciplined um, and didn't rush up and take the stuff I said you should wait to take home with you, uh, on the, 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 you, you remember at the beginning I gave you a couple of uh, a series of poems by Virgil and Horace? Um, and I told you that those, to me, symbolize this yearning, spiritual yearning, for a resolution to this concept of what's man's relationship to the divine world. <clears throat> Here are two poems that come from our world. And I think you'll find that the spirit of them is, is very, very different. And they're not poems that deal with a frivolous subject. They're poems that deal with death. And one of the big differences about our concept of death and its consequences as compared to the pagan concept of death and its unknown consequences. One is a, a poem by Rupert Brooke, one of the English uh, war poets from the First World War. And uh, the other one is by the Poet Laureate of Victorian England, Alfred Lord Tennyson. Now, both poems, I think, will be familiar to you. Tennyson certainly is. It's often read at funerals or wakes, uh, and it's called Crossing the Bar. And the other, uh, which is a poem by... is entitled Safety, and this poem was written when he was going to be shipping out to go to the Middle East, the Gallipoli invasion. Uh, interestingly enough, he never made it. He died on the way out there. Um, but if you look at these two poems, both of which are talking about or anticipating death, you'll see that uh, it was worthwhile. It was worthwhile because the attitude here is so very, very different. There's an assurance, a peace, uh, which passeth all understanding. So please, take a copy of each one of those. And if you want to write your term paper, you can take those poems and uh, confine it to four type written pages, please, and uh, I'll take a look at it.
<laughs> You're welcome. My pleasure.